Get an inside view of the latest private equity deals and the people behind them and meet the people who make it happen. Welcome to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Host Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team 6 members interview company founders who have succeeded and some that haven't. Each show will feature lively interviews with company founders to find out whether there is a deal or no deal. Now here is Kevin Fechtmeyer and his team of experts. Welcome. This is Kevin Feckmeyer, host of The Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code. And we've got uh, some great guests on for today. And uh, just to recap what's gone on the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had uh, every show start with a little market update, uh, deals in the market, uh, what what's happening in the private equity world that's of interest. And then we can move on to interviewing an entrepreneur, a real live company owner or founder who's actually done it before. And for those of you who've been you know, listening in each week, we've got uh, each segment focusing on something that's a little bit different and relevant to people trying to build their companies. So the first episode dealt with a CEO coach. We had Mark Sandroff in from Cadre, who has been very successful for us uh, providing CEO coaching services and talking about what, uh, what he does to help companies get oriented towards growth. And uh, that involved a lot of aligning uh, management team members and uh, making some tough decisions about family members and companies uh, that are family owned and things like that. And I think people got uh, good, you know, I think good uh, information from him about what kind of questions to ask before you think about taking your next steps in growing your company and what a CEO coach can do to help you as part of a sort of a third party objective service that. Uh, has been you know very successful in the past and the next episode focused on mezzanine debt and the do's and don'ts of private equity we had uh, a terrific uh, guest there we had uh, Chris Roden of C3 Capital and he was very helpful in sort of deciding or helping people decide what is really mezzanine debt and what's equity and what's senior debt and a lot of people you know, frankly, you know, confuse the the different instruments when they're financing their company, and frankly, a lot of uh, a lot of folks out there tend to misrepresent uh, some of the uh, the the pros and cons of their products. So I think Chris set us straight, and we had a great interview with one of his uh, clients, uh, Jeff Mastro of Stake Forty Four, and uh, it was quite a contrast to. Um, you know, other entrepreneurs in the consumer and restaurant segment. And we were fortunate enough to have Mark Harshberger on last week. Uh, Mark was the uh, COO of a company called Philosophy, and um, we ended up uh, working pretty carefully with him over the years to help build and buy other companies. And uh, Mark uh, had a great perspective of what it was like to build a company from $10 million in revenue over eight, nine years until he sold it for over $500 million to Carlisle Partners. And, and his perspective on what it was like to work with a private equity partner at that, at that stage. So we've been, I think, uh, you know, kind of hitting on each theme uh, for uh, what you know, company owners and founders would need to know before they b- began entering into a deal. And so <laughs> Deal Junkie isn't just about let's do a deal a, de- a day, a deal a week, a deal a month. It's about figuring out which deals you can really get done. There's uh, hundreds and thousands of deals that we see every year, and most don't get done. And uh, a lot of times 
we you need an outside expert to help you figure out what you do need to get the deal done. And that involves the proper structure, the proper valuation, um, all these things that an investment banker can help you figure out. And today, we're very fortunate to have a great guest, David Feltz from TM Capital. I'll let David tell you about his background, but I've known him for over 20, 25 years now, scary thought. And he's one of the top investment bankers in the Southeast, based in Atlanta, and operates nationally. And uh, you always know that uh, when you've got David representing you, <laughs> he's going to do a very good job. So maybe always not the best job from a buyer's perspective because he's so successful working with clients and getting the best deal and valuation, but certainly representing companies, he's a, you know, an ardent advocate. So uh, we're really pleased to hear uh, from him today, and he's going to have a great uh, CEO on that uh, actually worked with David and used him uh, as an investment banker. Um, and uh, Chuck McGonigal will you know, come on later, we'll give him his, his background. But um, I think as a little bit of an orientation again, which we do every week, uh, the deal market continues to be red hot. Uh, transactions uh, continue to be very you know, active uh, in terms of volume, dollars, and number. And uh, we've tracked this pretty much monthly. Next month, we'll, we'll give you our 2017 year-end statistics. But I can tell you that uh, today, valuation multiples continue to edge up. The average EBITDA multiple for a middle market transaction, which is defined as a roughly a $500 million transaction, is 10.4 EBIT times EBITDA, which is a record. And uh, <clears throat> just a function of the ongoing uh, froth in the market. And uh, people say, you know, they're continuing to look to sell things that, that they can in their portfolios. And as a buyer, you've just got to be that much more, well, that much more cautious. And uh, had an interesting comment at the chemical investing conference that I went to last week in New York. Um, the private equity roundtable, the keynote speaker said, gee, it's 12 times the new eight times. Well, I always heard there was eight times the new six times, and it was 10 times the new uh, eight times, and now it's 12 times. And I had to, I, I just rolled my eyes. And so if you're in certain sectors today, you're getting record valuation multiples. I think that's going to have some implications for returns down the road, but um, for people wanting to get deals done today and looking at the capital markets today, uh, it's it's rare to have a combination of circumstances that are this favorable. Um, but before we you know dive into the second segment, which um, will be a little bit you know more involved with David and his background as investment banker and kind of how he preps clients, um, I'd like to introduce him here. David, uh, can you can you hear pretty clearly so far? Yeah, Kevin, I'm happy to be on. Great, great. Well, Dave, we've known each other a long time, and uh, we really enjoy working together. And And I was thinking about you, you know, last week when we when we scheduled this, and I was hoping that, uh, you know, I wasn't going to catch you, you know, way too busy hanging out on your yacht sipping champagne or something <laughs> like that. So uh, that that's the image of investment bankers in New York. You know, they're impeccably dressed. And... Uh, it's just, uh, it's always fun. I love the New Yorker cartoon where they had the uh, fellow pointing out all the beautiful yachts owned by the heads of the different investment banks. And the, the poor guy asked, well, wh where are the client's yachts? 
And uh, I don't know, if, <laughs> how do they operate down in Atlanta? Is it different than New York or is it <laughs> the same? you got to give me a little orientation of what it's like to be an Atlanta investment banker. Well, uh, well, we've, we've got a little bit of all of that uh, because the firm that, that I'm with, TM Capital, is, uh, is in Boston, New York, and Atlanta, which makes for, uh, makes for interesting Monday morning uh, partner meetings and firm meetings. And there's, there's a lot of different flavors uh, and a lot of different accents. Uh, that's, that's probably healthy. I like the fact uh, sometimes not being in the, uh, I don't know, in the rarefied air of, uh, of New York Wall Street uh, because, you know, in the middle market, very few of our clients operate in the rarefied air either. You know, they, uh, they get in their car, they drive to work, and they drive home. And uh, I think we match up uh, with them pretty well. What, um, talk a little bit about how many, you know, it, maybe this is a good time to get into your background and uh, how you got started and being an investment banker. What, what kind of man becomes an investment banker, man or woman, as I know there's a good mix there. But what, what are the traits that, that strike you as real obvious traits of an investment banker? Well, you're right. It goes, you and I have known each other 25 years. I, I just rolled the odometer on 30 years of, of uh, investment banking and, and private equity. And, you know, I, I'd say it's almost the way we look for uh, some of the junior professionals that we're hiring. It's, I think you have to have a really good combination of a lot of things. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, as you know, uh, with our respective backgrounds, you know, you, you, you end up being a little bit of a street lawyer. Uh, you end up being, you know, pretty uh, proficient in the accounting world. Uh, you certainly end up uh, needing a good command of, uh, of kind of the financial world, the historical analysis and the projections. Uh, but you also, at the end of the day, if you're in the M&A uh, part of the world and you're getting hired to sell a company, uh, you've, you've got to have that selling gene in you, uh, which is not a bad thing. It's, it's teasing out you know, the very best attributes of your client and the nuances of their business. You know, why are they successful? Why do they exist? Why can they even be better uh, aligned with somebody else, either a private equity investor or a family office or a, or a corporate buyer? And then connecting with those other people and helping them, you know, helping right. them get to the right answer. And but sometimes yeah. that answer is not a fit, but sometimes it's this is the deal they should own. Well, let, yeah, let's, let's take a step back. I want to dive into that pretty deeply when we get Chuck on and but I want to even take it a step further back about what kind of people you look to hire when you're hiring. And obviously, all these fancy business schools send you know lots of well-qualified applicants your way. And I, I was always amazed at the the various traits that they chose. I remember my uh, my infamous uh, summer associate class at First Boston 27 years ago, and it was just an, an interesting assemblage of folks from a a guy who was a published author to a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader to a, uh, a fellow that uh, spoke seven languages. It was just an amazing group. And then, interestingly enough, I went to the uh, assigned to one of the offices, which shall remain nameless. And apparently, the, 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 the head partner had a list and he rated the associates on how much they could bench press, which I had to <laughs> laugh. <laughs> and so, literally, it was a chart. And I'm sure this has long since been outlawed. But it was just interesting what kind of people became an investment banker. So you give me a sense. I mean, what are the, yeah, what are the personality no, so there was, traits? There's a time. There was, in fact, I have in my possession a reprint of a Prudential Beach, which became Prudential Securities, uh, but originally was, 
was beige. Uh, and I have a reprint of a 1940s recruiting brochure. And it says, what, what is the type of person that makes a great investment banker? <laughs> and in that book, it didn't play up as much the GPA, but it basically said that whoever was the fraternity social chairman would probably be a great investment banker. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I, I think that that's, you know, you need brain power, but at the end of the day, I think, uh, I think we're, uh, you, you've got to have a little bit of that, you know, zest for life uh, that is, uh, and you got to bring your own energy to these situations because your client's running their business and the, the buyers are, uh, are looking at hundreds of other things and you've got to inject a lot of in- industry, uh, a lot of energy right into that conversation, you know, to get the best impact. Uh, I like the word energy. We're going to get into that the next segment uh, in our last kind of 30 seconds here. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, in, in, I've, I've made a full confession my first episode. I, I am a recovering investment banker for the last <laughs> 14 years and uh, had 15 great years on Wall Street and now going to my 14th year here as a private equity investor. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's a great background. It, it you know, wax on and on eloquently or not so eloquently on all the pros and cons of starting out your career there. But um, just last item, what is the weirdest and wildest and funkiest candidate background you've ever interviewed uh, for an investment banker candidate? Uh, you know, at the junior level. Just you know, uh, give me you know, give it give it to me straight. I, I tell you what, I'm going to have to borrow from w- one of our old colleagues uh, because it, it, nothing that I ever had beat him. He, one of, uh, they interviewed a kid who had down in his hobbies professional magician, and they kept wanting him to do a trick, and he wouldn't. He wanted to interview, and they kept asking him to do a trick. So ultimately, he did a you know uh, uh, you know an invisible card trick magically, you know, just fanning out some cards, fake cards in his hand, nothing's there. And at the very end, as he's leaving, he turns around and he looks at our friend uh, Jeff and says, seven of spades, right? And walks out the door. And Jeff said he went kind of white because it was seven of spades in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty good. All right. There's some spooky candidates. Uh, we're going to take a break and then come back. And then we're going to talk more in detail about, you know, why people pay you the big bucks. All right, David. Thank you. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. How many milestones do we rack up in our lives? From marriage to changing jobs, buying a home, and starting a family. We think we have our money and finances figured out, but it isn't that easy. Learn how to plan, set, and achieve your financial goals by tuning into Money Counts, unleashing your money's hidden potential with host Debbie Peterson. It's time to take control of your personal cash flow. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. Hello, this is Kevin Fechtmeyer. We're back here on Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code, and we're in our uh, fourth episode, which is, Why Do I Need an Investment Banker? And uh, we're here interviewing David Feltz from TM Capital, a longtime investment banker. And uh, let me just throw the question out that's right in the title. Uh, why do I need an investment banker? You guys cost a lot of money. Tell me about why I need one. Well, uh, I mean, Kevin, I guess we've, we've built a profession and a livelihood on the answer to that question occasionally being yes, and uh, and I think there's you know there's a variety of, of reasons. Um, number one, I've always thought to myself that if I ever got in trouble, really serious legal trouble, you know, I would want my lawyer to be a former DA. I would want my defense lawyer to be a former DA because I would want to understand everything that was about to happen, and. You know, the investment banker to a company, to a business owner, to a CEO is like that very experienced um, defense lawyer who, who knows what the investors are looking for, who knows how to um, build the story around, around their company, um, you know, create the right amount of sizzle, the right amount of excitement, not too much, or it gets, uh, you know, just frothy. Okay. Um, yeah, just, marrying just, what, just to clarify, that whole defense attorney, that was a friend. It wasn't you, right? <laughs> that was a friend. But on the flip side, in that same analogy, for somebody to go sell a company that, is, you know, that has you know, a lot of value and to do it themselves would be like going into court and representing themselves for the first time in, in a court proceeding where everybody else knows the game except, except you. So, uh, and not you, but that friend. Um, so I think that there's a, there's a lot of experience from the, uh, from the world of private equity investors. Um, they are investors. They think in certain ways. Um, they're looking for certain things. We know those, and so we know how to, you know, augment and accentuate the positives and then take, you know, any of the challenging parts of the business and, and not pretend like they're not there, but to, you know, build a, a fence around it so it's, it's no more of a challenge than, than X, right? It's not a huge challenge. It's just a normal daily business challenge. And so I think it's the access to those investors uh, when you have an uh, investment banking firm like our firm, TM Capital, uh, 
you know, we're close, we're close 17 deals this year. Uh, uh, pretty good sized uh, enterprise values, values for those companies. And our interaction with the private equity world, uh, with the family office investor world, and then with corporate buyers within the various industry segments that we work, is over and over and over again. For the private equity world, we'll hit them 10 to 15 times a year. For corporate players in, a, in sectors where we're strong, you know, we may hit them two times a year, but it's been two times a year on various situations, you know, year after year after year. So there's a credibility, there's an understanding, and um, and candidly, you know, we do run into, I heard your, you know, on your lead-in, we do run into situations where, you know, folks um, have a view of valuation or attractiveness of their business, which was, isn't grounded in reality. And since, you know, investment bankers on the sell side, you know, generally are paid primarily, you know, the vast majority of our compensation would be on success at the end. If we're not going to have success, then then that's not a good deal for us to take on. So, so if you interview four investment bankers who are in business to do business and they all pass, uh, then your valuation is way too high uh, because, because they're going to vote um, – Vote by accepting the engagement with a lot of enthusiasm, or passing because it's not, you know, it's not based in reality. Well, that, yeah, that's a very fair point. I like the analogy with the the, the you know, attorney. You know, it's really, really challenging to represent yourself in any kind of civil matter, particularly a criminal matter. I can't imagine, but uh, it's it's. What I see is just a huge amount of misinformation about the market, the private equity market in general, the M&A market sometimes in specific. And oftentimes there's no filter as to the credibility of the source. So we'll hear from company owners that come in and they, they've heard from so-and-so that their company's worth $200 million or $100 million or whatever the number is. And then you do the math and you say, well, who told you this? And it's like, well, someone who went to the same dentist. And uh, they were an attorney that once worked for a company that, that was in a related industry. It was very, very you know, suspect sourcing of information. So we right. do see that um, having a, you know, a, an objective source of information like an investment banker you know, provide that. That's important. At the same time, it's you know you got to pay whatever a point or two, or whatever the, the yeah, data yeah. is. What is? I mean, we what, could, How do you how do you sort of you know look at that in terms of price to value? Well, so so interestingly, there is um, you know very and and there are you know small business brokers and you know there's a whole continuum of firms you know from from small one man shops all the way to the the largest you know international firms. And, and they're set up to operate in different ways. For us, I think uh, at TM Capital, we're we're trying to make sure that we um, have the ability. You should hire an investment banker when you think the difference between either doing it yourself or having kind of an average investment banker or a very good investment banker who might charge just a little bit more, um, you know, is it plausible that if they do their job very, very well, you are going to get you know way more than you paid for? I, I will I will tell you that in multiple deals in the last 24 months, just the ones that I've been involved in, forget purchase price um, in negotiating some of the other side elements of a deal. Um, if if the parties are going to use um, representation and warranty insurance 
and we're able to get the buyer to pay for the whole thing instead of splitting it. Mm-hmm. If in the working capital that we need to deliver um, from where the buyer may start out wanting you know, tons and tons, way too much working capital, and we're able to negotiate uh, down to a, you know, kind of the minimum acceptable mm-hmm. level, oftentimes just those, those pieces of a deal will 100% cover our fee. No, that's a very fair point. Very, I mean, the devil's in the details, and those are exactly the kind of things we would look to if we were selling one of our companies and we were looking to hire an investment banker who had knowledge like that. I, I found that the investment bankers are in, in, absolutely indispensable when it comes to highly complex situations and or complex personalities. Give me an example. What's the hardest company that you ever had to sell? So the hardest company, I thought about this uh, question, the, the hardest company that we ultimately had to sell uh, was the third largest roller coaster design and engineering firm in the world. Uh, and it was located out in the western states, which there was no reason for it to be there other than the founder lived in the western states, very far away from any port. And when we were hired to sell the company, about 80% of their projects were going into China as the middle class of China, this is just a few years ago, was exploding and uh, with economic, you know, with, with, with wealth creation. And what do you do when you create a little bit of money? You take the family to Disney World or its comparable, you know, park. And so, uh, so major roller coasters were going into that business. So we're talking about you know, a handful of sales, so very project-oriented business, uh, uh, very technical, uh, you know, 365 days a year, 24-hour service, because when a, you know, when a ride goes down halfway across the world, your service people have to be there. And ultimately, we found uh, a large uh, Japanese public company that, uh, that saw this as the, they played in all of the uh, rides uh, except the really big ones, except the 16 or $20 million, you know, marquee roller coasters. See, what, what's, so this, what's not to like from a private equity perspective? Far away, <laughs> you know, high liability risk. lumpy, yeah. uh, project-oriented. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, exactly. That's exactly what every private equity investor is looking for. I love it. Exactly. So you got a strategic. So we found, uh, you know, we always, I always joke that... Uh, that uh, you know, when private equity partners uh, go to sleep at night, they dream of the strategic buyer for their company, and when they go into REM sleep, they dream of the foreign strategic buyer. <laughs> That's <laughs> who, terrible. Who terrible, might pay true. just a fortune for it? Well, we all we all look for that. I we you know we don't bet on the drunken sailor coming around the corner, but uh, that's usually our hope. Now, that last, is part we, of you know part of our job is to make <clears> sure though that. Uh, if there is a drunken sailor out there that they don't have a hard time finding mm-hmm. their way right to us. Yeah. And so we, we're, we're trying to make sure and touch, you know, all the bases out yeah. there. Well, let me ask in the last two minutes here, we got uh, my favorite tombstone in my years on Wall Street was J.P. Morgan, you know, pre-Glass-Steagall, ways back, had a blank, the back of it was a blank tombstone, the whole back of the Wall Street Journal, blank tombstone, said, sometimes the best deal is the deal you don't do. And I love that. I respected that motto tremendously. What? What? Have you ever had to pull a deal, and why? Yeah, I'd say there's. I'd say there's two flavors of that. One was coming out of the, 
Coming out of the recession, we had a client that had about $9 million of EBITDA. And, of course, the cash flow lending market, which the private equity world, you know, uh, really needs in order to pay attractive valuations, was, had not really come back and then was starting to come back. But we really needed that market to firm up. And we waited about seven months. We took a monthly test of the lending market, and, and we had uh, the private equity group behind our client ultimately give us a lot of credit for being willing to wait and wait and wait until we really felt like there was an all-clear sign. Um, I've also had the situation where we had too much of a good thing. I remember there was a, I think there was a book when I was a kid, uh, when my daughters were young, uh, Bernstein Bears, and, and there's a book called Too Much Birthday. And we had a client that had too much birthday. We had a, uh, we had a large, uh, a one single customer that it was about 60% of our business, and it was going to be declining so that within a year or so, through growth in other areas, it would only be about 40%. Still a lot, but, but much more manageable. And in the middle of our management presentations, we won a, uh, two brand new projects with that same customer and went up to 80% revenue concentration. Uh, and truly at that moment, it's not sellable. Yeah. There, there's nobody. And so we had to withdraw that deal. And we, we remain watching that deal kind of bleed off down to a more normal level. So it was fabulous for well, the owners. They made a ton of money selling the same product over and over and over again, <laughs> even more so. Um, so it was great for them, but it made it made the deal not doable. Let's uh, go to break now, but I just want to thank you for that. And we got Chuck McGonagall ready to launch in there after the break. And We'll get into maybe some more scandal at that point when we talk about busted deals because I got some good ones. Talk to you in about two minutes here, David. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Get a unique and playful insider's take on the biggest stories in tech, media, and entertainment. Join Lori H. Schwartz, well-known technology catalyst, comedian, and geek girl, as she and leading experts in the media and content business dive into the biggest stories in technology trends, consumer behaviors, and its impact on Hollywood. If you're looking to respond to the tech-fueled changes in the marketplace, then tune in to the Tech Cat Show Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business and syndicated to Voice America Women's Channel. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. 
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. And we're back. This is Kevin Feckmeyer, host of Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code. And I've got David Feltz, investment banker. And we were just going through what an investment banker does. And uh, we don't really do anything here without kind of checking sources and uh, making sure that uh, they're telling the truth. Always a challenge with some investment bankers. But we've actually got a former client of Mr. Feltz on with us who's got a very impressive background as a CEO, uh, Chuck McGonigal. Uh, you, I wanted to talk because you've got so many companies here on your background that, that you've you know, built and run. It's been It's very impressive. Uh, first, you know, talk a little bit about your history and introduce yourself. Um, I see you're from the August Institution of, of Drexel University. I was pleased to see that. And, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how you got to be uh, an entrepreneurial CEO and uh, then how you got to know to David, and then we can pick on David together. Perfect. Um, I, I spent about, uh, after leaving Drexel, I spent about 20 years with Procter & Gamble, mainly in the international operations. I was the first executive into China, um, did some work in the Philippines, uh, helped them with the uh, CoverGirl slash Max Factor acquisitions when, and when they got into cosmetics. Um, and so when I left P&G, um, uh, joined a company by the name of Lesco that was uh, vertically integrated, and uh, there was a lot of value that we had to unleash, and we sort of put together a strategy to sort of break it apart, and from that um, got into the, the the game of looking for value in what I'll say in mid-cap companies, and uh, worked with a, a IHDG, which was a wall-covering company, and then went to uh, Clio, which was a publicly traded company, but was um, uh, uh, um, uh, did gift wrap and uh, decorative bags, and then from there went to a craft and hobby group called Color Book, which was owned by Equity and was really in a ditch and needed to get out of that ditch. And we've I'm sorry, could, could, could you step back on when you say owned by Equity? Some of our uh, listeners may not be as familiar with the industry jargon. I wanted to just clarify oh. who's the Equity. So, the equity company was FDG, and also a, uh, a partner to them on that deal was uh, Prairie Capital. Okay. So the entrepreneur who had founded the company, Bill Taylor, um, decided to sell his a, a portion of his company, 80% of his company. To the to, pri- uh, a pri- a private, private equity. equity. Gotcha. Okay. That's, so you've worked with private equity before. This is going to be a real good yes. background for the listeners. Yeah. And so I spent about five years, and we found a way to unleash the value of that company. And we sold it to actually another private equity firm. Um, I stayed on for a couple of months to help them through the transition and then moved on to a company by the name of Artissimo, which was, again, held by uh, Huron Capital, which was a private equity company. Wait, who, did you sell, again, who, who did you sell the color box to? The Huron? 
Um, actually, no. We, we, we sold uh, Colorbuck to a, a group out of Columbus, Ohio, Lazier Capital. Um, huh. And Lazier still holds that today um, and, and has uh, made a, a, a pretty good success story out of it. Um, right. Artissimo was, uh, was held by Huron Capital, and uh, Artissimo uh, was framed and unframed ours. And uh, the founder, sold, again, wanted to take money off the table, meaning that he wanted to take some of the value that he had created in the company and put it in his pocket versus putting it back into the company. Huron Capital purchased it. And on this case, it was move the headquarters from Montreal down to L.A. and uh, move the operations from Montreal down to Mexico. And wow. uh, that, that, that business, uh, after about two years, was sold um, to another equity group. And um, from there, we, you know, I, I uh, went to a company by the name of Spencer and yeah. Spencer okay. Enterprises. So this was a, diff- was a different equity group than Huron. Yes, oh, wow. uh, Spencer Enter- Spencer Enterprises was uh, decorative pillows. Um, it had sort of found itself in a uh, a ditch, meaning that they had uh, uh, their inventories had built up to a point where they didn't have the cash to operate, and they asked me to come in and um, you know within two years we got it turned around and producing a it was a it was a nice business and uh, that's when we engaged um, uh, we, we engaged David's firm. Um, uh, TM Capital uh, to help us sell the business, and um, you know we 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 were at it, David, almost a year uh, from the day that we met. Uh, we we sold it within yes. uh, with with twelve months, um, which is which took a little bit longer, but um, there was a there was a number of uh, what I'll say interesting uh, uh, interesting points about the business that we we had to work through with with TM Capital. Um, now, but it was a successful transaction, and uh, I think the, the shareholders were very happy with the sale of the company. Let me, let me just put a name on what you do. If if not mistaken, you're what is known as the, the, the rare but very valuable commodity known as a serial CEO. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah. I, I tell my wife I have a hard time keeping a job, but my job really is to you know get the company prepared for sale, uh, look for where we can release that value, I, I, I typically focus in on consumer products, and I also um, where there is a high design element, sort of a fashion-forward business. Well, um, I, I, I wish I had uh, my other Deal Team Six member on the line. Uh, Paul Picard is also a very uh, successful serial CEO. Was on his sixth or seventh company before he teamed up with Cave Creek Capital. And uh, sounds like you're doing great. Uh, you know, in, in looking at this background over, gosh looks like uh, 15 years as a serial CEO, that's really unusual. Um, that, that's, a, that's a rare find for any private equity firm. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're going to get into the good, the bad, the ugly of working for private equity firms, and you don't have to tell us which names you, know, you can associate with which, but um, let's go into the, the investment banking world. What, what did David's firm do for you that other firms could have done or could not have done. I mean, talk, talk about a differentiated product because a lot of people commoditize investment bankers and, and they don't necessarily differentiate about what they do well and what they you know, don't do so well. How, how did you find working with, with David and his firm? Well, I, I would say this, having done this a number of times, um, first and foremost is that you have to be 
comfortable with the leadership of the investment banking company. So if, if you're bored in, as CEO, if you're not comfortable being able to pick up the phone and have that, that tough discussion, they're probably not the right group to work with. Um, so you want to you want to have what I'll say a comfort zone with folks, um, being able to have a, a tough discussion. The other piece is is uh, TM Capital was deeply familiar um, with the home decor uh, industry, which we were part of, and they knew a lot of the players. And for us, um, having a representative with I'll say the the, um, the credibility that TM Capital had in in the business, uh, in, in, in our sector of the business, um, really made a difference. Because the one thing about TM Capital was they were there during the rough period. They were there when companies were being displaced from the north down to the, to, uh, the southern part of the United States or over to China, and they were helping these guys figure out which way was up and how to make, how to make money when it was tough to make money. So they had a lot of credibility in the industry, and that was one of the things we really liked about their approach. Um, you know, David, did I miss anything? Because you, you, while you were on the receiving side, you were also you know privy to board discussions and things along those lines. But did I miss something that you would you would say you know uh, uh, a company I'd be looking for in a private uh, a private investment group? <laughs> No, I, but I really do think that uh, you had, you know, you had a uh, you had a private equity board. You had uh, lenders that were on your board. Uh, sometimes yeah. I think there were, you know, there were times when you know certain people might think one way, certain people might like a, think like another. And I, I think, you know, I, you not only did a lot of our work end up trying to help you tell and package the story of the company and the. And the big transformation you were making, I mean, you had transformed that business in 24 months into something that, that was performing a lot better. But, you know, sometimes it was around internal communication, too. Well, actually, that's a real interesting point. You've got a pretty deep board and you've got a very qualified banker. What did the private equity board members do and what did the investment bankers do when, in that process? I would say that, you know, the roles were pretty well defined um, or they became defined. Uh, as CEO and as you know, the management team, our job was to basically get the you know present the company, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the company. Um, and what the investment bankers did, uh, I would say, were their role was to ensure that um, we we understood what we were saying. There were times where you know, it, in, in essence, while we represented the company. They wanted to make sure that, you know, hey, you know, you want to make this in the most positive light as possible. Um, you know, you want to make sure that they're, they're seeing the value that you've created with this. So they were, in, in essence, polishing the, 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 the diamond. Um, and I would say it, it, the board itself um, basically guided the, you know, the investment bankers to where they want it ultimately to end. And so where their involvement was, I would, uh, I would just characterize it as um, uh, they would come in and have, you know, updates, but then also provide guidance on, you know, we, we believe we need to, you know, end up here or here's the timeline we're working to. Did, did, they, now, have, did they have valuation expectations and were you above or below them? And just and the board sometimes goes into a process with, hey, I, I, I'll sell the companies worth X. 
And sometimes the banker can do that, sometimes they can't, and sometimes the process takes its own course. Where was that situation? Well, it's interesting. Because of where we started, and it was such a short period of time, it was only 24 months, we we had gone from the company's value being probably less than three or four million dollars to a valuation of close to 30 million. So for them, they were, I would say when I got started, when they first hired me, they would have been ecstatic over a $15 million valuation of the company. When David got involved, I would say that they were probably in the place of 25 to 30, and we landed on the high end of that. But I would also say that during the sell process, because you have so many numbers being thrown around, sometimes, especially, I will say, the less experienced uh, board member sort of went to the higher end of the valuation and said, oh, that's what we want. And you're you're like, well, you know, that's where you start. But typically when you get into due diligence and when you get into deeper valuation, it could it most likely will slide a well, little bit. Actually, then, so, then this is a perfect entree for the next and the final segment, which is the process and how you chose who you chose and all the rest. Because, I mean, I like those numbers. I like David even more now than before the call. So this is great. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll kick back two more minutes. We'll be back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network having a lawyer in your court is always a good idea each week wagner and winnick on the law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges lawyers and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Deal Junkie. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
You may also send an email to questions at cavecreekcapital.com. Now, back to Deal Junkie. And we're back. This is Kevin Feckmeyer, host of Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, with David Feltz, an investment banker from TN Capital, and Chuck McGonigal, a self-described serial CEO. And... uh, uh, talking about a process that, where he used David's firm to sell his company. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by what you told me in the last uh, portion of the show, which was um, you got double the original valuation expectations of uh, folks when they were starting out with their investment, which is very impressive. I think that you know, makes an investment banker worthwhile, um, if not you know, a bargain. So, but, but talk about you know, what the process, what was the hardest part of the process, how many choices did you have to choose from, and then ultimately why did you choose the, 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 the buyer that you did, and then how did David help you navigate that process? Well, we, we interviewed five different uh, investment bankers um, through the process and early on, and that's, the board really led that process. Um, when we, uh, we had them come in and present to the board um, what, their, what they saw in the company and their valuation. Um, David and his firm, and, I, and I'll say this is one of the main reasons you know, they had my vote and I think the, the rest of the, of the board voted in this direction, was um, uh, they came in with a very honest appraisal. You know, the turnaround was so fast, they said, you probably could make more money if you waited another year or two. Um, but honestly, if you have to, if, if you're going to sell in a two, you know, after two years, your biggest challenge will be to convince the buyer that it's actually true. What what you actually did is not a paper exercise, but uh, you know, and and that was to me a little bit stunning, as the CEO saying, "Yeah, but I've been living this for two years." But the other side of it, I really appreciated the honesty that he came in with. We had other investment bankers that came in with a much higher valuation and a, a lot more promises. But um, bluntly, I would say that they didn't come in with, what I say, a balanced view of the world and, and, and show us here's reality um, as you go, you know, as you move forward. So, so, how many, um, so I know we only have nine minutes, but I want to get the cut to the chase. How many books did you send out? How many IOIs and how many did you select? I mean, ultimately, what was the the top tier of, of candidates that you had to interview and select from? Geez, David, you probably know those numbers better. Yeah, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, we went for the size company of, of the EBITDA here. Uh, there were, um, we ran a pretty broad marketing process, uh, broad, not only including foreign strategic buyers, because uh, because this company, Spencer, was the number one decorative pillow supplier in the U.S. So they were they were the number one market position in that category, which meant they had a number one position with almost every major retailer. And we felt like, um, and we did receive. I mean, one of the one of the more interested management presentations was with a a huge uh, multi billion dollar uh, Chinese home textile business, uh, which is starting, which had made one acquisition in the U.S. to get a brand, to get a direct brand relationship with retailers, and we're looking at Spencer to see if this could be another category where they could have a direct instead of an indirect relationship. Um, 
we ended up with uh, three or four different strategic buyers who looked at this product category either as a home textile or a home decor um, product. And, you know, some looked at it one way, some looked at the other and saw it as a natural extension. Um, and then we went to a lot of private equity groups, and we had a little bit of interest there. But I think the category, the minute you say textiles, uh, a lot of private equity groups um, uh, are just a little a little shy of that category. You mean they run for the hills? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, and so at the end of the day, we probably had 50 or 60 books out and uh, – and probably eight or so, you know, primary management presentations. So we had some, we had some very interesting people take a good hard look to see how this product and how this company would fit, and to figure out because Chuck had done something really amazing, which was to move, you know, on kind of on the fly some of the production to Mexico, and it, which really changed the cost structure. But the the strategic buyer who ending this company really valued that Mexico operation, at least in those in that early days. They really felt like uh, that Chuck and his team had really accomplished something in getting that, that production moved. So, so Chuck, Chuck, how did you evaluate pr- pr- uh, private equity versus the strategic buyers, and which way did you end up going? Well, I, uh, honestly, where we, where we looked at it was, first off, it was the valuation of the company who was going to provide highest, but also did they align with our strategy? Um, Spencer is located in L.A. County. L.A. County had gone to fair wage, which meant that they were going to see a 50% increase in labor cost over a four-and-a-half-year period. Um, there was no way that Spencer was going to be able to, main, to, to uh, survive, um, you know, uh, if, if they stayed in the L.A. County area. So as a result, we, you know, our strategy was get a foothold into Mexico, and then ultimately move the operations down there. We wanted to make sure that, you know, there was a long-term, you know, uh, uh, that the long-term was as solid as the short-term was for Spencer, and that's where we ended up. So did, um, did and a that, private equity or strategic firm buy into that, or was there a difference in how they looked at that? You know, it was, it was fascinating. We had one group that was extremely interested and at the very end, backed away because of the political view of Mexico. Hmm. And, and remember, this was last year, um, you know, January, February of early 17. Right. So the first quarter of 17. And well, we were, in fact, I don't we were in management presentations when the, the Trump administration <clears throat> started talking about, you know, pulling out of NAFTA and the border tax. And yeah. uh, that, was, that was very ill-timed for our purposes. Mm-hmm. So, but then, so you needed to have somebody who was not as risk adverse and also could see the, you know, almost the economic and political situation that really was there, which was, um, you know, they weren't, they were looking to renegotiate NAFTA. They weren't looking to, to dump NAFTA. Um, so ultimately finding, you know, the person that uh, purchased us was private equity, but it was a strategic buy. They had. Can you disclose who it was, or, or is it private? David, I, I don't see it. Yeah, they have asked us in public. Uh, if I were talking to you, I could tell you, but because of some channel concerns, it's a private equity-backed portfolio company that bought us. Okay. Yes. Uh, but they have not publicly 
disclose that, and so we can't either. Okay, so you, you, yeah. they're not they're not allowed to brag. So that means you guys have to brag too now to to make <laughs> up for that. Uh, and it's rare to see a private equity firm not bragging. So that's good. Um, David, uh, David much David better to hear the CEO. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear the but, CEO. Yeah. But a, a bottom line was uh, they it was a good fit for them. It was also a good fit because. The other growth opportunity for Spencer was on the e-side, you know, to, to really drive um, e-commerce with, you know, put pillows uh, on Amazon, and, and they had that capability. Good. And what Spencer, what Spencer had was the opportunity uh, to increase profitability um, because it was, a, it was a very profitable company and with lots of cash flow. You know, La- last, cash flow. last question. We've got a minute left. Uh, is there anything you wish had been done differently, and would and would you do it again? You get two questions. Oh, I, I would absolutely do it again. Um, I, I mean, I, I you know TM was a good partner, uh, but also I don't think I would want to go into a cell of a um, you know a, 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 I wouldn't want to get into a cell without having uh, an investment banker next to me because I think they're going to draw out a lot of a lot of the value that may not be there, especially when. Um, you're looking in the mid-cap world. Okay. But um, and, anything and, and, you would have changed? Anything different that you would have improved or changed? I did not understand the value of quality of earnings on the seller side. Hmm. And it took, you know, David, what did you say? You know, it probably took us 20 to 30 days to get the management team to understand that we really needed to get it done. And that probably delayed the process because we were going into the holiday period by okay. 45 to, to 60 days. I, wow. I, I think that I probably would have gone faster onto the quality of right. earnings, but didn't understand it. David, well, that's great. No, that, great. I was going to say yeah. that's, that's all our time now, but that was a great uh, you know, cautionary note, but a great story from both of you. I want to really thank you for your time today, and it's been one of the meatier segments. Uh, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road when the CEOs are making it happen. And David, uh, you know, great, great story for, for you and a client. So thanks again, guys. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll have this aired on, uh, you know, Wednesday and look forward to, you know, hearing all the reaction from the different folks. Kevin, thanks for thank having me on. Chuck, great. great to be with you. Great to be with you guys. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Deal Junkie, cracking the private equity code. Be sure to join Kevin Fechtmeyer and the Deal Team 6 for another edition next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a nice week.